You love someone with dementia, but you feel like you're the one losing your mind, right? This is a common feeling, and it's not entirely wrong. Caregiving is so mentally and physically stressful that cognitive decline in caregivers is not uncommon. How could life be better? How could we not feel like we're the ones losing our minds? Learning some simple tips, gaining practical advice are both good first steps. Knowing that this feeling is completely normal and widely shared is also a good second step. Or maybe that's the other way around? Regardless, you are not alone, and in less than an hour, you can take away some practical tips that might help you feel less like you're losing your mind and more like you're in some sort of control. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. A quick note before we get into the show. Please make sure you're following us on social media. All of the links to our accounts are in the show notes, which you can click through right there on your phone down below. Got it? Thanks so much. And while you're there, would you mind giving us a four or probably five, maybe even a 10-star review? We're still a new podcast, and this is the best way for new people to find us. And make sure you like and share this with your friends. Good afternoon. Today on the podcast, I have Brett Beth Friesen. She is a certified Alzheimer's disease and dementia care trainer. She's a certified dementia practitioner, a certified senior advisor, and a registered nurse. And if that wasn't enough, she is also the author of the book, I Love Somebody with Dementia, So Why Am I Losing My Mind? I did get that right. Yes, I did get the right. <laughs> See, my brain is still working pretty good. So thanks for joining me today, Beth. Absolutely. Why don't you start off and tell me about your journey with your mom? Because that was the catalyst for the book, I believe. Yes, it sure was. Um, in about 2007, uh, we noticed some subtle changes with our mom. Um, they were transient at first. And as by way of background, I come from a family of four girls. Three out of the four of us are registered nurses. So oh the goodness. fact that we could not see what was happening with our mom uh, in hindsight was quite staggering, but I think it was a case of you can't see the forest through the trees. And when you are so close to a situation, it's easy to explain away what might be happening. And we successfully uh, did that for probably close to two years until one day it hit me. I was standing in line to pick up a pizza for my, to feed my young family and I called my sister and I said, mom's got dementia. Mom's got Alzheimer's. That's what's going on. And so our dad was not at all um, on the same page as us. In fact, he wasn't even reading the same book. So at that point, mm. it took about another 18 months before he consented to let her be tested. Now we understand mom was probably close to, if not in stage four, if you're using the seven stages of Alzheimer's, uh, when that testing occurred in 2010 and the diagnosis came back as dementia, likely Alzheimer's, as many of us have heard. And so at that point, um, mom was too far into her disease process to have a lot of the discussions that we would have liked to have had with her about her 
wishes for care and end of life and, and so on. Um, but through that time, we felt very much that we were on an island. We didn't know where to turn. We were given a few pamphlets, uh, the name of a website, and wished the best of luck. And so we took it upon ourselves to begin researching. And so even though we had some medical background, we didn't have this type of medical background. And so we had to learn just like anybody else would, um, not only how do we care for our mother, but how do we support our father who was her primary caregiver? That seemed to be the biggest piece of the puzzle for us. So we went on a quest to learn as much as we could. Um, about 18 months after my mom subsequently passed away in 2014, um, I started a business called Oasis Senior Advisors, helping families not feel like they're on an island through this journey. Um, and then out of that came the dementia practitioner, the dementia trainer, and then the book. And ultimately, the book was written if it would help just one other family then it would be worth it. I wanted to arm families with all the information that we wish we had known when we started our journey and what we learned along the way and put that together in something very easy to read, very easy to digest. It's not full of medical ease or anything like that. It's just written um, from one person to the, to the next to, to help them through their journey. That's awesome. Cause I meet so many people and the, the denial and the, like you said, the not being able to see the forest through the trees is just, it's amazing, especially okay with you guys with medical backgrounds. It's like, it makes me feel a little bit better because my mom has been on a much longer traje- trajectory, easy word to say today. She, I think, started showing signs in 1995. Uh-huh. She would take orders from clients regular listeners are like, oh no, here's that story again. (laughs) She would take orders from clients and not write down due dates, directions, anything useful. And it was easy, like you said, to dismiss as well. She had planned on taking care of it and then got distracted. I mean, we all do things like that, but that got worse as time went on. Not quickly though. She, you know, it just, I think when you look back, you're like, yeah, you know, it's like it happened once a blue moon and then it happened more regularly. It was slow enough that it was easier to deny. Now, we also had the benefit for air quotes for those who are not watching the YouTube video. My maternal grandmother had no memories at the end of her life and it was either undiagnosed Alzheimer's or she had had a brain aneurysm that leaked for three months. And I've gotten two different op- medical opinions. One, she wouldn't have degraded from where she was after they repaired the aneurysm. And some a neurologist has told me, yes, she would have. So I don't know what the answer to that one is. But also my maternal great-grandmother had no memories at the end of her life. So we did have a little window into what might have been going on but my mother was in huge denial there was one day she I found an order again no directions no nothing no clues at all and I held it up to her and I said what am I supposed to do with Beth's order and she looked at it she goes that's not my handwriting that's Melania's handwriting which Melania was the uh, one of our employees 
And I looked at it and I went, yikes, because the handwriting wasn't even remotely similar. I mean, one was very angular and one was very loopy. It was just, there was no way to mistake that. A person on a galloping horse going by would not have mistaken that. And I was like, oh, that's a little troubling. And then she's like, well, I don't want to end up like my mother. And she stopped off to another part of the building. I was like, oh, <laughs> terrific, because murder is illegal. So I don't know what you want me to do. That was pretty much the extent of admitting. I don't think in my presence she's ever actually admitted to being ill. She does now tell me occasionally, well, my brain doesn't work so well anymore. And twice now she's said, once she said, well, my brain's dying anyway. And I was like, yikes, because that was the first time I'd heard that. And then I was just with her yesterday and she said something really similar. And it's like, those two statements have come in the last four to five months. And she um, declined quite a bit since the beginning of the summer. So I don't know, you know, it's it kind of, it's kind of creepy because yeah. it's like, is she aware of what's going on in some realm? It's hard. To me, it's one of the most cruel ironies of the disease. If someone has heart failure, for instance, if they climb a flight of stairs, when they get to the top of the stairs, they totally understand why they're short of breath. Someone with dementia or Alzheimer's, they often have no idea that they have any type of of anything wrong with them. So it's, it's cruel in that, in that sense. And it makes it harder to deal with because you're not coming at things from a collective space, like you might with some type of physical diagnosis. Yeah. There's quite a few people that, again, that I've met either in person or online somehow. And I guess when your loved one is diagnosed, but they're still showing signs of being quote normal, and then they have days when it's obvious something's wrong and they kind of go back and forth. I think it's really difficult to acknowledge, yes, they really do have an issue. Now with my mom, like yeah. I said, we've been doing this for like close to 20 years. It's frustrating. I haven't met too many people that have been on this journey this long. And I kind of went along with it was just memory loss I didn't, I, I did not realize what the disease was like, even with my grandmother who pretty much ended up in a wheelchair, non-communicative and just, just sitting there was, she was just a physical being in a wheelchair. So you would have thought I would have had a little more clue, but that was back in 2012. And I have to always look it up if she died in 13, 12 or 13, I think it was 13, it wasn't until after my dad died in March of 2017 that I realized that I needed to figure out how to communicate with her, to connect with her, because we kind of figured it'd probably be another 10, 15 years easily that we, my sister and I would be primarily responsible for her care. Now, she is in a, a memory residence. They're fantastic. And it's not going to be that long at this point. The neurologist thought maybe 10 years if nothing happened. And we just saw her about a month ago. And she was quite shocked at how fast she declined in the time frame that between the two appointments. And it wasn't, I found out about the Alzheimer's Association after 
I'd gone to a hospice grief support group after my dad died. And I thought, well, this is great for dealing with that piece of my life. But I have this bigger piece over here with my mother and how I feel about all that and trying to take care of her, trying to figure out what the heck to do that's right. And that's when I Googled support groups for Alzheimer's and found the Alzheimer's Association. So my education was rapid because it was necessary. And I try very hard to let people know the more you understand about the disease, the more, you know, because everybody's affected differently, the more you know, the better off you'll be able to take care of you and your loved one. Absolutely. So what, what, let's see, you guys are nurses, all three out of the four of you. What challenges did you guys have that we, that you look back and you're like, that's kind of surprising based on our background. I hope that question makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the biggest challenge in that was just the fact of how little we actually knew about the disease and how it progressed. And, um, you know, the million dollar question that everybody has is how do I relate to my loved one when they are in that particular stage of the disease, whatever stage that is. Um, and that, that's one of the things that makes the disease so particularly uh, difficult and frustrating is just about the time you get it figured out, they have a change and they decline and what you were doing no longer works and now we've got to start over. I truly believe that the term throw spaghetti at a wall and see what sticks may have been coined for this disease. Yeah, I agree. Because that's what it ends up being. And so I think for us, the biggest surprise was just how little we knew and, um, and, and the fact that no one talks about it. Yeah, that is nobody, that is, nobody talks about this disease, particularly the caregivers themselves. It, it, it's not a national conversation like, you know, we're recording this in October. So, you know, breast cancer awareness, we're not aware of what our caregivers are going through. That is very true. And how they need to be educated and equipped. Um, One of the things I'm working on, and I am struggling because nobody wants to talk about it, is how stigma and denial affect getting education, getting treatment, setting up a care plan. Like you said, your mom was, you know, middle of the stages of the disease. So it was too late for conversations and a lot of planning that involved her. It doesn't sound like your dad was super excited about having those conversations. So that probably made it even more difficult. My mom, like I said, I don't think my mom ever admitted that she was sick. You know, regular listeners will know in the summer of 2008. So this is, you know, probably at least six years into knowing that something was going on with her. She went through all the testing to be a kidney donor for my dad, and she was rejected because of cognitive impairment. And I thought at the time, okay, hallelujah, now we're going to admit it. And it wasn't until after my dad died, he died in, I think it was beginning of 2018, I got the diagnosis from her doctor. She was not diagnosed until September of 2011, three years later. I'm like... Really? Like who, where was the barrier to that? Why was she rejected to donate a kidney because of cognitive impairment? And it still took three more years. I mean, that just makes me want to 
just bang my head on the wall, which of course is not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, you know, that is a whole another issue in and of itself. And it is the lack of communication that occurs between healthcare providers. Um, An individual can even be hospitalized and people still aren't talking to each other um, during that hospitalization. So um, yeah, that's the million dollar question is, is why are our healthcare providers not able to Uh, dispense information easier between each other so that you could have gotten a diagnosis sooner. Yeah, it was, I didn't know if it was her, you know, my, I didn't, I don't know where the breakdown was. So I don't know that it was the medical profession. It could have been them. It was probably a combination of all of the above. I know during the, I can't remember now if it was the testing for the kidney or the, the memory testing, probably the memory testing. She had a neuropsychologist tell her she was mm-hmm. fine. And I think at that point she went, "Up, oh, see, I'm fine. And when we heard that, myself, my husband, my daughter, who was 16 at the time, she's almost 28, we were like, who is this guy? Where is he? Because had I been with my mom and he had said that in our presence, I probably would have lost my cool and punched him in the face. Because we'd been dealing with her memory issues for so long that to tell her she was fine. I mean, my daughter knew. My daughter's like, this guy's nuts. There's no way. Grandma's not fine. She's going to end up like her mom. That was the conversation. And that's what really blows me away. Was she able to fool him? I don't know exactly what a neuropsychologist does. So, yeah, that didn't help. Uh, A gifted neuropsychologist is very, very good. Unfortunately, just like nurses or any other type of of doctor or psychologist, you name it, we've got ones that are really, really good and ones that are not so good. And unfortunately, you may have gotten one that wasn't very good. It must not have been. Uh, Because a good neuropsychologist should be able to see and test, have objective testing. I mean, there's no way to bluff that stuff. So that's interesting because that that would either have been 2008 to 2011 and I think it was 2011 it's been a few years it's you know and I wasn't directly involved so that's why the memories get all blurred up but even then like my daughter graduated from high school in 2009 and my mom wasn't good then and it was obvious it was obvious to like my in-laws and other people that spent any amount of time with her, she could fake it for, you know, like if you're at a party, like the graduation party afterwards, she'd talk to this person, she'd talk to that person. It was easy to fake it. But if you talked long enough to one person, she she couldn't fake it for that long. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So how did you guys get around that stigma and that barrier to getting her help, to getting her diagnosed? Well, I think for, you know, my dad is now 90, almost 90 years old. And I think for that generation, there is a huge stigma that, you know, they have to get around Um, to them. There's nothing worse than, quote, losing your mind. And so, you know, mental illness and all those things, you just have extra barriers there that we had to to get around. Um, And then even after we convinced him, that yes, she needed to be tested. We need to find out. Um, I was the one that drove them to and from that appointment. 
Um, it became my fault because had I not taken them, we wouldn't have this diagnosis. And don't get me wrong. I love my dad and he was amazing, an amazing caregiver for my mom. But the denial for him was just so strong. He just could not stand the thought of losing the love of his life um, that it, it just pervaded everything, I believe. Um, but we finally did get her diagnosed and slowly, you know, baby steps, he came to understand better um, what she needed. And, you know, we were, my, I had young children still at the time, the rest of my sisters were all empty nesters. And so they were able to spend more time really with you know, in their home than, than I was just because of our circumstances, but they really would show dad different, you know, without saying it, they would just do, um, through the books we were reading and things we were, you know, learning different ways to, to help her. Um, she had a lot of hallucinations. Um, there were always small children in her home that she was caring for, or, you know, she was a farm wife. Um, for years and years. And there were hired men, hired help that needed to be fed and this stressed her out. Um, and, you know, my sisters learned and we all learned how to divert that and calm those hallucinations. So they, you know, didn't scare her and frighten her and make her feel anxious. And dad just kind of, I mean, he had such a motivation to take care of her because he loved her so much. And so he just kind of grew into the role. And really kind, I mean, not everybody is like mm. that. Nope. My, my, um, I, yeah, I, I deal with families every day that are going through this. And I had a master's educated daughter sit across the table from me and say, mom just needs to learn some new life skills and then she'll be fine. <laughs> I just read that. I think on Reddit last night, this person's, I think it was their grandfather, is living alone, definitely should not be, won't move into a, quote, old people's home, which, okay, I get, but somehow we have to get past that stigma, too, because when I have a grandmother that's 101 and a half, mostly blind from glaucoma, otherwise physically fine, refuses to contemplate any kind of assistance that is not free from the family, she's burned out my aunt, my sister tried desperately to convince her to move to the assisted living portion of the community where my mom is at. And I know from being there that my grandmother would love it because she would have people at her beck and call. They would have to take care of what she wanted to be taken care of, which this does make her sound a little bit not, you know, she's a wonderful woman, but she's very strong in her opinions and she wouldn't even consider it at all. So it's, it's a challenge. Well, and, and that's too why I wrote the book because no magic fairy is going to show up and suddenly teach families how to deal with this diagnosis. You've got to, you have to take the impetus upon yourself to go and learn and study this disease um, because, you know, even your physician, especially if you're diagnosed by a primary care physician and you don't go to a specialized clinic dealing with all of this, um, number one, our, our medical system is not set up that he would have the time to devote to that. And second of all, unless he has specialized, 
in Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, he's not going to know what to tell you either. I believe that. She or she. Uh, And that's to no fault of their own. It's just how medical school is structured. And they honestly, they just don't spend a lot of time on it. And so um, that's why I wrote the book, because it's meant to be a guide, an aerial view that, okay, I'm suspecting something is wrong. How do I get a diagnosis? Okay, now I've got a diagnosis. Now what? Yeah. And what are some nuts and bolts types of things? How is this going to likely play out? No two cases are ever the same. But what can we expect in the coming years? What discussions do we need to have? All the way through grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and plus a lot of good resources because you've got to take it upon yourself to get educated so that you can give the person that you care for the best quality of life that you possibly can and not lose your mind in the process. Yeah, there's definitely, there are days I feel like, I think I actually even mentioned it, kind of muttered it under my breath yesterday. My mom was having a quote conversation with this gal behind us in line. I took her to the fabric store. She enjoys that because it's something she used to do in the past. The children are in school, so we can't go to the park and watch the kids like we have over the summer. And my mom said something and I was like, please don't murder my brain was the comment. (laughs) It's just like, I'd had enough. And it just flies right past her. It, it, those words make no sense to her. So it's, it, they're not hurtful. It's, it's like she didn't hear them. But I want to take a quick step back. One thing we've never dealt with is hallucinations. Thank goodness. And most of my guests haven't had much of that experience either. So how did you guys help her through those? Because I've heard some, some pretty scary stories about you know, them being terrified because there's people in the house and they can't get rid of them or. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, we tried again, spaghetti and walls here. We tried a lot of different approaches, um, but she had um, this recurring hallucination of small and often uh, physically challenged children in her room and the stress that their parents were not coming to get them. And so these children were left in her care, and and so it just really caused her a lot of anxiety. Um, One time, one of the things that we found that worked was um, my sister asked her a question about something um, that was in her bedroom. So they went into the bedroom to look at it. Um, When they came back out, then the same sister announced, oh, look, the parents came and they picked up their children. And so you don't have to worry about that anymore today. And it worked. (laughs) And mom was so relieved. Why that worked, I don't know. Um, but we used variations on that same kind of thing often. And that, for her, seemed to work. Um, the other one was the men she could see outside the window. She was never frightened of them. They were just always the hired help that she needed to feed you know, lunch to, or, or whatever it might be. So um, one day I was there and I was going to take her out to lunch, but she was very, very stressed because the men were going to be coming for lunch and she didn't know what to feed them. <laughs> and so I said, well, mom, 
I said, you know, you're almost 81 years old. You don't need to worry about that anymore. How about they just go into town and get lunch today? And she goes, well, I suppose they could do that, but they like to eat here because it's free. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, okay. But she conceded that they could do that. And then we went out to lunch and we had a really nice time. So um, again, you know, I just keep coming back to it. Spaghetti and walls. You got to figure out what's going to stick for your loved one. And, and it may take, it may take a lot of spaghetti or it may take a very little, it just depends. Sometimes you get lucky and sometimes it just takes a lot of doing. One of the things that I've struggled with that I've finally, I think, succeeded in getting past is this is my mother. So I do not like to have to give her instructions. I realize that I do to a point, there are certain things we get in the car and I just buckle the seatbelt because she can't do it. I don't ask if she needs help. I just do it. And she says, thank you sometimes. And I, I kind of just, it's almost like helping her in the car, buckle the seatbelt, no big deal. Two weeks ago when I was visiting, we did go to the park because we're in Northern California. So our falls are very beautiful. It's very warm and lovely. And I thought, well, let's go to a different park because I get bored. I do not like repeats. The only thing I like a repeat is I like leftovers. Leftovers are good. Repeats. I don't, I don't rewatch TV shows, movies, or reread books. Um, I don't like doing the same thing over and over again. So going to the same place over and over again with her is boring. So I'm like, oh, let's go to this park that's in this neighborhood. It's not far from where she's at. And it was great because there were some young kids and then kids coming out of school came. So that was great. But we would, we walked around the park and she, her visual processing is shot. And unfortunately she watches her feet. If I could get her to just look straight, I think she would have a lot less issues with walking. So we walked around the park and there was like, it was concrete and we get to a path that walked down from an upper level of sidewalk to a lower level. And as soon as her feet hit that dirt, it was just like almost a cartoon gag of, Oh, I don't know what I'm about. It's just like, never mind. Back to the sidewalk. I didn't even attempt. I'm like, I've given up. She just cannot walk on. And like the grass, even flat grass in a park is a challenge because it just, I don't know what it's doing in her brain. If she would not watch her feet, I think it would help because then she would feel that it's flat and she'd be okay. But she looks at it. Except that watching their feet is a very normal behavior. And part of that is as the disease progresses, the vision is affected. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine, it becomes like goggles. So when we walk straight ahead, we rely on so much of our peripheral vision to get our sense of depth and you know our spatial relation to where we are in the world that helps keep us upright. And so changing surfaces or anything like that um, becomes extremely challenging yeah. for them. I didn't. And, and is probably why many of them stop walking because of that depth perception problems. And it's just too scary to not have enough vision when you're 
vision field, I should say, um, left when you're trying to navigate the world. Well, I hope I don't ever get Alzheimer's because I have lazy eye that was corrected just before I turned four. So my brain thinks that I see double. So it only accepts the input from one eye at a time. So technically I don't have depth perception and I only have peripheral vision on one side at a time. And I'm a professional photographer. So that's just, <laughs> it's, it's been this way my entire life. So to me, it is not weird. There are times when I'm aware that what I'm seeing and what's what my brain thinks I'm seeing, I can tell it's like, is that wall over there? Is it over here? And so I, I can... I can understand a little bit about what she's seen, but she's physically fine. It's like, stop watching your feet. <laughs> Just like I, when, if we go, there's a regional park close by and we didn't do a lot of walking there over the summer just because it's too much challenge at this point. But I would be like, Oh, look at the bird. Oh, look at the pretty sky. <laughs> look at the nice clouds and anything to get her to stop looking at her feet. And you said that because of the the fear of falling and and the the visual processing being shot, they stop walking. There is a gal, a new resident where my mom lives, that walks constantly, literally bent in an L. She's bent over from the waist, watching her feet, does not sit down. That she has 24-7 caregiver in the memory care residence. Because they just walk around and around and around. And it's, yeah. you know, yesterday she was and, pushing and a chair and they said she wanted to drive somewhere. And so I said, oh, okay, you want to push me? No. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and hence, you know, no two cases of Alzheimer's are the same. Nope. Everybody's it's going to be different. It would be so much easier if we could write a book that would say, if this, then that. And we cannot do that with this disease, um, which is why it is so difficult for caregivers, I think, because there's just not a, a one size fits all. Yeah, I just, I'm reading a book right now and I'm, I'm working on interviewing more caregiver, spousal caregivers, because I end up talking to a lot of caregivers like me, daughters. And in this book, the husband starts talking about, well, we'll take care of that in the morning. We'll do that in the morning. And it took a little investigating, but his wife figured out what he wanted. And she talks in her book how all the way till the end, even a, a man with Alzheimer's can still want sex. And that's a struggle. It's like, well, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that one. <laughs> Well, that, that could be a whole nother podcast that, that you could do is just the sexual expression um, through Alzheimer's and that that need is still there. It's very difficult for caregivers who place their loved ones into um, memory support units and they begin to have relationships with someone other than them. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor is probably the most well-known for her stance on the issue. Her husband had um, Alzheimer's for many, many years. And and she said, how can I expect him to honor a contract that he doesn't remember? Mm -hmm. And so she grew to be very okay with the woman in, you know, that he had a relationship with 
in the memory unit. Um, you know, it, it's, it's tough. It's tough. But we remain sexual beings to our last breath in many cases. It's just, it's in our DNA. It's how we're wired. And Alzheimer's does not necessarily take that away. Yeah, I haven't seen too many of the ladies interested in that. And obviously, it's predominantly women where my mom lives. I keep seeing one guy. I think the men come and go a lot quicker than the ladies. But there was, when she was first there, probably within the first year, there were there was a couple who lived in the memory residence portion of the assisted living community. But he he had a lot of physical problems and chronic illnesses, but his mind was fine. She had physical problems and her mind was not fine. So they lived in the memory residence for her safety, but he would take her over to the assisted living side. Or And it got to the point where she started holding hands with some other guy and walking around and, and it was, it was hard because the caregivers would to try to steer them apart and, you know, try to keep the relationships in the right direction because it was really hard for him. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and then we get into the whole discussion about consent and can someone with Alzheimer's give consent? And if so, how long, you know, those, those are some pretty interesting areas. So that that reminds me, I show up, I go on Mondays after my rotary meeting and I show up on this Monday and I can tell that there's a meeting going on in the dining area. They've got two dining areas that are diagonally across the, basically the square from each other. And, all the people were in the, the, the one closest to my mom's room. And as I approach them from the entrance, I can hear them talking about what we're talking about now. It's like, you know, sexual behavior in people in a memory care residence. And I thought, oh boy, this, woof, that's a conversation. And I get around the corner. I'm like, there's my mom just sitting there at the table listening. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. She had no clue what they were actually talking about. She just was trying to be like the good, you know, she's trying to be the responsible person, paying attention to the, to the talk. And so I sat there with her and I was like, this is really not what I want to do with my mom today. <laughs> and then there was a gentleman, he actually kind of graduated to the assisted living side. He, his mind is not great, but he would get really really bored and he was constantly trying to escape I mean like through the window he was and he was a very tall gentleman he still is and I don't I remember one day I showed up I'm like where where is so-and-so they're like oh they moved him over to the assisted living so I'm like well that's not what I was expecting to hear so that's a good thing but he was very friendly and there was one day when my mom looked at him like he was some sort of creeper, like he was after her and he was just being nice. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. I don't think he was interested in any of those ladies in any of that way. He was just being polite and gentlemanly. So it's, mm-hmm. thankfully I've had, I haven't had that problem or that issue to deal with, but I, I've seen enough of just a little bit of the potential that I'd rather not deal with it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a hard issue for staff to deal with in those situations, and and it can be very very painful for family. 
and, and really hard to navigate that. Yeah. I was, um, at another residence up in Sacramento for a talk and the gals there, the, the staff, the, like the marketing people and stuff were, they were like, Oh, you should, you should talk to family members that, you know, their loved one is here and now they're having a relationship with somebody else, even though their spouse is still with us and they weren't able to get those people to want to actually talk to me. So we're back to the stigma thing. So I will have to search for that. Cause yeah, after reading the whole thing about the, in the book about, you know, the sex, I was like, Oh, that'll be a really interesting conversation. I'll have to search that one out. So um, what other big piece of advice? Cause I loved what you guys, what you said about the hallucinations. I think that'll be helpful for, people that are experiencing that with their family member to hear and getting educated is the whole reason that I started the podcast, but what other. Right. I think one of the big um, things that people struggle with is the whole sundowning oh, yes. thing that goes on. Um, your loved one can do pretty well from the time they wake up in the morning um, until, you know, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And then, um, all the, you know, different things start to come out. Some people call those behaviors. I like to call them symptoms. Um, I don't think behaviors are very, a very dignified way to, to describe it really, but those symptoms can be very, very difficult to manage. And so it's learning again, throwing more spaghetti, but it's also learning, okay, what do I need for myself during this time? And if that sundowning becomes an issue, um, one acronym that I really like to use, I took it from AA, it's called HALT. And so literally HALT, and then ask yourself, could they be hungry, angry, um, lonely, or tired? And when it comes to Alzheimer's and dementia, also ask, do they possibly need to use the bathroom? So if you can, you know, look at those things and address those, you know, um, a mid-afternoon snack can help kind of boost those blood sugar levels a little bit. Um, are they upset about something that maybe occurred earlier in the day? Um, you know, are they lonely? Do you need to get out and see some other individuals or, um, you know, things such as just going for a drive? You know, this time of year, watching the, the leaves turn um, can be really beneficial. A lot of um, people that sundown have a propensity to want to exit seek at that point in time of the day. So if they're still able-bodied, let's use that to our advantage. Let's go for a walk in the neighborhood. Let's go for a drive. Like you said, go to a park, um, maybe go to a, a, a pet shelter you know, and see the animals, you know, do something to engage them, to get them around other people, um, change up the environment a little bit. Um, so doing some of those things can, can really help during that time. I think it's also important to know that there are going to be days that you, you can't get it right. It's just, you know, you, you just, you try and try and try. It's not going well. In the book, we talk about assembling your village. This disease is not a sprint. 
It is a daily marathon and it goes on for years. Mm -hmm. So you have got to have your village of people that you can call for those days when you cannot find any spaghetti that will stick. You can't find a way to help alleviate their anxiety and you're feeling frazzled. You've got to have people that you can call on so that you can go for a walk or you can go have coffee with a friend or, you know, do whatever it is that fills your cup. Um, I think where we see the most caregiver burnout is in those situations where people don't have the support that they need. Which goes back to getting educated. It's not just they forget things. I mean, when I, when I go on Mondays, I have to pass the director's office and then When you walk in the door, you can either go left or right. If you go left, it's where the med tech's little closety office is. I'm not sure exactly. It's not really a room, but closet doesn't seem like the right word. And then if you go straight down the hall to my mom's room, I have to pass the director's office. So yesterday she said, you know, and and I've experienced a lot more of this. My mom is getting a lot. It's not, she's getting like verbally violent. Just very, she's been super easy for two and a half years, and now she's not super easy. And it's a little su- surprising to them because a lot of this has happened rather quickly because of the steep decline she took at the beginning of the summer. A lot of it is not outside the norm of her personality. It's she was, you know, she was great till you crossed her, and then whew, you were in, you know. <laughs> I have never met anybody that can literally hold a grudge for a month. And she did that to me once when I was a teenager. I mean, literally spoke to me as little as possible. Just, oh, it was was not good. And I'm sure I didn't do anything quite that horrible. I'm not that kind of person. (laughs) And I've noticed twice now, I, I like to bring her a little treat. Not that they need sugar, but that's what I bring her. The rotary meeting yesterday had brownies, so I brought her a brownie. And when I put it in her hand, I said, here's the brownie. And I'm like waving it in her face. And she switched it to her left hand. She goes, well, I like it over here. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to dictate which hand you put it in. Although why you want it in your left hand when you're right-handed, okay. And then she just sat there with this brownie in her hand. I'm like, okay, apparently if it's in your hand, you forget it's there which means she probably can't feel it. But the director also yesterday told me that they had a meal or my mom forgot how to use her fork. I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. kind of been expecting that one. And we don't have rotary lunch next week. So I'm going to go have lunch with my mom so I can observe. It's been a while since I've had a meal with her. Um, So that's one thing that we find when those situations start to creep up is um, the whole, if you want to call it mob behavior, <laughs> so to speak. But if if your loved one forgets how to use a fork or forgets how to eat a brownie, if you're having a brownie together, they will mimic your activity. So if you have a brownie and you're taking bites of it, they're more likely to see the brownie than and take bites of it as well. So there, there are some things that can help elongate that period of time that they can still participate in some of those activities. So, you know, um, putting the brownie on a small plate rather than in her hand, you know, I, I, I don't know. You just have to well, try re- different things. Those are just the reason ideas. I put it in her hand. One is we were in the car 
and two about a month ago, maybe a little longer, doesn't matter. Our cycling club had a picnic on Sunday and I make a very dark chocolate spice bread. And the staff had given me little small paper plates to put, I had two slices of this bread left. So I put them on the, this like we're talking black, almost black bread on a white plate. And so I, I gave it to her and I said, I told her what it was, you know, tried to get it close enough to her face that she could smell it. And she also had a drink and she's literally waving the plate around like she's conducting music. And the only reason the bread didn't fly off the plate and hit me in the face or go in the bushes was because it was sticky. And I was just astonished. I'm like, I told you it was there. You know, if it was vanilla cake on a white plate, I would, that I could kind of see because it all kind of blends if your visual processing isn't great. That one I could see, but I'm like, you could not have more contrast. So yesterday was an attempt to see if actually physically holding the food would make a difference and it didn't. So I'm going to have to bring healthy snacks because I don't, I had a tiny couple bites of the brownie. I'm trying to lose a few pounds. So I don't need to partake in brownies with her. I just bring them because it makes her happy and you know, yeah. they're at the meeting. So the, the wait staff is always super happy to pack up extras for me when she had a really good friend. Oh, she was such a funny lady. That woman, I would say, Oh, you guys want me to bring you a treat? Yes. Chocolate. <laughs> Got it. Yes. <laughs> I know you like chocolate. I don't even know why I asked. And I made my mom a dark chocolate birthday cake and her friend literally was licking the frosting out of the pan out of the, you know, the dish. And it was, and she, when I tried to take it to, you know, I was going to take it and then the staff was going to take it and wash it for me. She grabbed that dish. Like it was quite funny. So she, she yeah. unfortunately everything you're describing is a very normal progression Yeah, of the disease. It just, like I said, it was very surprising because, you know, we've kind of just churned along just kind of losing skills a little bit at a time, slowly, slowly, slowly. And then honestly, May 1st, I went and visited. I had run into a couple at the gas station whose mom is also in the same residence. And they said, oh, we had this nice visit with your mom and da, 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 told me all about it. So when I got there and she was really woozy and out of it, I thought, mm, you know, she visited with them for about an hour. She's tired. So we did a couple of little things and I just kept the visit short. The very next day, the staff called and said, mom is dizzy. She's out of it. We don't know what's going on. I'm like, oh, she must have a UTI. This is just way too overnight. That's the only explanation, right? Nope. She did not have a UTI. I was shocked. I almost wanted them to test it again, but we had to actually use a catheter to get the urine. And I did not want to go through that again. So <laughs> I was shocked that she didn't have a UTI because it was literally yeah, overnight. They can just, yeah, they can just hang out in one space of the disease for what seems like a really, really long time. And then they can go through two stages of the disease, literally in what feels like overnight, because they're just trucking right through those particular stages. 
you know, again, (laughs) if you've seen one case, you've seen one case. I mean, there's no way to explain it. Yep. That's definitely. But it's hard because then you're grieving all over again. You're grieving more losses. Mm -hmm. You know, they've declined and it takes you a while to get your land legs back to where they are now and kind of readjust. Definitely readjusting because I've, I don't ask her questions that I expect anything more than I ask like AB questions. Do you want a diet Coke or iced tea? Well, whatever you're having, what do you want? <laughs> I finally stopped asking that, but there was one day I, I forgot what it was. I was asking her. It was something really simple like that. I mean, it may have been that example. And then I come home and my, I asked my, I was a little bit hungry and it was, a little early for dinner. So I'm like, well, I'll have a snack. And I'm like, well, I better ask him what, when he's going to have dinner done. So I said, what time were you planning for dinner? Well, I don't know. When do you want it? I'm like, Oh my God, no, give me an answer. And he's like, well, it's and I'm like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I just had this conversation with my mother. We're not doing this here. Like, and he got a little offended because I was comparing him to my mom. I'm like, I'm hungry. I will have some fruit or veggies or something if dinner is going to be 6 37 o'clock. If dinner is going to be more like six, I'll just have some water or something, just chill. I need I need information. I need data. I don't need this blah 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 over here. It was like he was so baffled. He's like, he was offended that I compared him to my mom, but it was so frustrated. I'm like, I don't need platitudes. Just tell me what I need to know. So I can make a decision. Do you want tea, Diet Coke? What time is dinner? Like, these are very simple questions. (laughs) But she's not even, she does not, she she will not answer answer that. And she gives a very socially appropriate answer. um, Because her mind just cannot process the ability to even make those simple two decisions, you know. And so those, those social norms like that, they stay intact so far into yep. the disease. And even if she had said one or the other, by the time you got it, there's a good chance she wouldn't have remembered what she said anyway. So I, I just know. try to be polite. Do you want Diet Coke? Yeah. Iced tea. Diet Coke? I mean, it's almost like just throw something at me. A, B. You know, I, I know she probably won't remember, but it's like it doesn't feel proper and this is probably well spousal caregivers probably feel this way too but it doesn't feel proper to just say oh here this is what I got you to drink it just seems really kind of rude I mean you'd think she would have at least some opinion and I think it's great to still ask but you know if she says no what I'll have whatever you're having just go with it it's all good. That's that's what I've I've gotten to the point where that doesn't bother me as much. The social norm behaviors that I'm really struggling with. Like I said, we were at the fabric store yesterday, and it's so large. I don't know how those people ever keep it organized because it's only kind of sort of organized half the time. And she's picking stuff up off the floor and she waves what, I don't know if it was folded tissue or a folded piece of paper. She like waved it. Did you drop this? I'm like, no, that looks like trash. I think we need to leave that a trash on the floor. Mm -hmm. And she's like, 
basically questioning me. Oh, you think? Yes. No, I know. Please leave. Please leave it there because I don't see a trash can for the trash. Oh. And then we spent enough time in the aisle. She picked that up. Now she's unfolding it. And I'm like, now we got to go wash your hands because I don't know what that is. It is not merchandise that fell off the shelf. And it's just, it's like, she picks up trash off the ground at the park. And even though. Go ahead. Even though the fabric store was something she probably, you know, loved throughout her life. Um, it may reach a point that is just too much stimulus could be. for her. And so she focuses on, on something like trash because it's something she feels she can do something about because all those colors and textures and everything um, can just completely overwhelm her mind. And so she has to zero in on something she can feel she has some control over. So unfortunately, as we progress through the disease, some of the things that they've enjoyed forever, all of a sudden start to bring them a lot of anxiety. So you just kind of have to keep your pulse on that. And when things they once enjoyed bring them stress, then you kind of have to move on to something else. Well, I don't think she was stressed, but it is a good, I like, I like that you told me that because I am acutely aware of her moods. I think because my mood affects her. If I'm in a, if I'm like three weeks ago, I didn't get my bike ride in Monday morning. My husband should have listened to him. I know dangerous thing to admit. And he's like, you might want to postpone and go see mom a different day this week. Well, I look at my calendar and I'm like, I cannot rearrange my life so that I can go spend a couple hours with her and then come home and be brain dead. Mondays, I don't do it anything. I don't even respond to emails unless I do it while I'm sitting in the park with her. And I'm old enough. I don't like doing it on my phone, getting better at it. But I always think, oh, I'll just go home and answer these emails. And I get home and it's like, yeah, no, I don't care that they're offering me a million bucks. I'll get to them tomorrow. It's just brain dead. So we, we did not have a good visit that day because I was just stressed and frazzled and just, just my energy was negative. And she snapped at me like I was a naughty toddler and that didn't go over well. But she is starting to get more, like I said, a little more verbally violent. She was good yesterday. She, you know, I was positive. She was positive. But knowing what you just said, because she enjoys the fabric store a lot. She, I can see that she's looking around thinking, well, I wonder what, what I can do. And I, but I I didn't think about look picking all this crap up off the floor as being a sign of maybe being overwhelmed. So I appreciate that little tidbit. See, I always just something to watch for as you journey on. Yeah, I just try to find things to do with her outside her residence. And we're blessed with two regional parks very, very close to where she's at. I mean, they're close to me, but they're like super close to her within 10 minutes or less. One of which we have to get out of the car, walk around the water. The other one, you can drive up to the parking area and back down. And it's far enough that for her, it's a long trip. For me, it's not very far. <laughs> but again, like I said earlier, I don't like repeats. And we've done that drive up and back to the hills enough times where I've noticed it's like, and we're approaching mile marker two. And there's that comment again. <laughs> 
oh, it's so big. It's so awesome. And it's like, oh, I should turn on music because I just need to drown you out. So I, I, it, knowing that I'm going to hear the same thing in the same spot, it just, it's like, first it was fascinating. Now it's just super irritating. So. Yeah. Well, and that's just, and that's just being real and being real. It does get irritating and it's just, I always, I call it poker face. So we get, you know, irritated, but how do we portray that irritation to them? Hopefully we don't, you know, but I love that, that you're real about that because that is a fact of caring for someone with this disease. Well, she uses the word awesome all the time or amazing. That's the one amazing. She's like, where she lives is in a part of the town she's in. She's always saying, it's just so amazing how much this place has grown. And I'm thinking, it hasn't changed in 30 years. Not really. I mean, not building-wise. The What's in the buildings may have changed. You know, the houses may have changed residents. Trees have gotten bigger, but there has not been a lot of different construction because they've just run out of space. And so it's like, uh-huh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And then we go up to the mountain, which for people who aren't familiar with Northern California, uh, we live at the base of Mount Diablo, which maybe I'll put a picture of that in the show notes. And it was partially created through volcanic eruptions. So there's like a lot of thrusting, vertical-ish type hills. So they're really steep and I don't think of anything more than a cow or a goat could actually walk up the hills. It's not something a human could do without a lot of training. And she's always telling me how amazing it's at all. There. It's like, oh my God. So I try to take her different places, but once yeah. this past winter, California had 150% of its rainfall. It rained up until Memorial day, which is completely not normal. I, it was got to the point where I was like, okay, mother nature, we're done. <laughs> we hit the hundred percent mark, cut it off. <laughs> I'm done with this rain. <laughs> and so it was hard to take her places because she sits so low in the car. that it's hard for her to see. I take my dogs occasionally to visit. There's new residents. So I got to take one at a time now to make sure that nobody's afraid. Cause I wouldn't want to do that to them. But I don't want to sit around in the residence with her because she's not conversational enough. And she can't, if I read her, I've tried to read her like little short, funny stories, but she can't follow those anymore. So it's just like, I'm not sure what to do with her at this point. It's hard to give her stimulation. That's not too much or not nothing at all. It's a new challenge for us. Yep, you're going to have to throw some more spaghetti um, and see what you can find, whether it's some crafts or music, photos, you know, all those things. You just got to keep trying them. We can do one photo at a time. The album did not work two years ago. That was actually the beginning of the podcast was I was trying to find ways to connect with her. And I was utilizing all of the suggestions that I found online and none of that spaghetti was sticking, which by the way, you're going to make me want to change my dinner plans tonight. (laughs) All this talk of spaghetti. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it was really frustrating because I thought I go and visit and sometimes I would trim and polish her nails, but it got to a point where, you know, as her nails are drying, she's digging through her purse, which she's got stuffed full of tissues. And I'd have to say, wait, your nails are wet. Oh, they are. And it's like, okay, that's frustrating. So now it's just trim them, keep them, you know, neat. And I don't even put clear polish on them anymore. So as, as she's declined, I mean, we tried a craft. It'll be, yeah, it's been about three years. Holy Toledo. That was a nightmare. I, that's when I learned what visual processing was versus just memory loss because she couldn't even sign her name and they have the crowd, you know, they do the little coloring and I said, I love coloring. It's so relaxing. Let's, let's color with the other ladies. Okay. And it was such a simple outline of a poodle, which she had all her life and she couldn't figure out the difference between inside the line and outside the lines. And I'm like, well, we can't do this either. So (laughs) we've run out of things to do. And she will sit there, she'll say, yeah. well, so what have you been up to lately? And I'm getting to the point now where I just say, oh, the usual, because if I tell her, well, I've done, you know, I did rotary and I had, you know, a, a high school senior from X school and we did some fun things with his music. She just looks at me like, huh? Because it's, I'm her best friend. So those answers make no sense. It's like, if I asked you about your musical career, you'd be like, huh? Oh, you're talking to the wrong lady. So I've gotten really good, really short, almost useless answers, which, you know, after 20 minutes, you're like, okay, well, I've told her that five times. And I've learned she, when she's about to ask me, well, so what have you been up to lately? There's a breath and a body position. And so I sometimes just interject with, so what's new around here with you? just like cut her off before she asked me again. <laughs> but it's, you know, we, yeah. I like to yeah. go watch kids because we can sit there and watch kids. You know, I'll put my head back and just like last week. You it, can talk about how cute they are. Yeah. And, uh, but I'll like the other day I was listening to the birds and I just, I'm like, I'm just going to soak in the, the nature around me, the, the calming, you know, the, the kids squealing, the little kids laughing, because that's always a kind of a fun noise. And the birds chirping, and I just put my head back, and I'm looking at the clouds through the trees. I'm like, this is actually very relaxing. And so we sit in companion, companionable silence. And that's, that's okay for a little while. <laughs> then I lose my mind. <laughs> that's when my to-do list starts scrolling. <laughs> yeah. That's the hardest part. It does. It's hard to stay present in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you have a absolutely. last tidbit of advice for people besides that they should definitely get your book? Because like you said, it's a very long marathon and going to have to make a lot of spaghetti and throw it out a lot of walls. Yes, you are. Well, yeah. In addition to the book, which is available through Amazon at this point, um, in the back of the book, I have a, a list of resources. And so the book is really designed to be a starting point, um, an aerial view, if you will. So if you want to dig down further and learn more, the resources are available in the back of the book that you can do that. Um, So, you know, 
I don't ever want to claim that it's the end all and be all in Alzheimer's education. It's a starting point. It's a guidebook. And um, there's going to be some more coming with it um, because there's a lot of steps that we talk about in the book of things that we need to accomplish, whether we have Alzheimer's or not, such as estate planning and and those kind of things. So there's going to be something coming probably in 2020 that is going to help people um, when they have someone diagnosed um, that they can work through some of these processes that are recommended in the book so that they can be better prepared. So you can be watching for new things coming. Awesome. It's definitely helpful to have a guide like what you've written because you don't know what you don't know. And if you've not already lived through somebody else's journey with Alzheimer's, maybe a a distant family member or a neighbor or friend, you have no idea what it is you need to put into place. And I find, and we did this too, I feel like I'm still doing it. You're kind of chasing a solution to the next problem. Okay. Mom's starting to get kind of violent is not the right word. Crabby. (laughs) And she gets crabby at the, in the afternoon, they have dinner about four 30. So I would always hang around till about four, four 30. Last week I was out of there at three 30 cause she was starting to get just, just, it was like, Oh, I see that personality trait coming. Escort her into the dining room, which was another, you know, different change of scenery. So I thought that might help her. And I really didn't want to get yelled at again. So <laughs> like, I'm out. Well, and, and that's okay. That's okay. As a caregiver, you have to know, when to tap out and whether that's at home and you bring in backup help or like in your case, if you're visiting some days, it's just not going well. It's okay to tap out a little early. That, that doesn't reflect badly on you as a daughter or, or the person who's being a full-time caregiver. It's just a fact of life. And that's definitely a good thing for people to hear. So I think we should leave it there. Cause I know you got somebody else to talk to later this afternoon. Yep. It's a, we have a busy week. So. That's good. This is my first week in a long time. That's not super filled. So I'm last time I said, yes, I have the whole afternoon to get stuff done on the computer. The doctor called and blew up my whole day. <laughs> yep. That's a dangerous thing to say. Yeah, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm busy. I got a lot of stuff going on. I have a lot of things to do. I don't have time to play. So I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. The link to Beth's book is in the show notes. I highly recommend it. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Well, you've made it to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for joining me. If you found this episode helpful and informative, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple iTunes. This is how new people will find us. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. All of our accounts are linked in the show notes. And as always, I will be in your ears again next Tuesday.